Good morning. It's great to be here with you all this morning to worship our triune God. This morning we're going to be in the book of Zechariah chapter 3. Before we look at Zechariah 3, please join me once more in a word of prayer. Almighty God, we need you because without you we are nothing. We thank you for your word, God. I pray that our hearts would be encouraged as we look to you. Speak to us, O Lord, through your word, by your spirit. Let your name be glorified. Give us wisdom to understand your text. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The journey continued for the pilgrim. He was finally making his way through the Valley of Humiliation, but it didn't take long for him to meet an enemy. It was an ancient enemy who went by the name Destroyer. This enemy, seeking to accuse the pilgrim, was eager to point out all of the pilgrim's shortcomings. He started making a a list of all the things the pilgrim had done wrong, how he had sinned. After making a long list of his shortcomings, look at how the pilgrim responds. This is what the pilgrim says. All this is true. In fact, there is much more that you left out. But the prince whom I serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. And besides these wrongdoing which I have committed, I have groaned under and repented of them. As a result, I have received full pardon from my prince regarding these crimes. If you haven't caught on quite yet, this is a summary from part of the book, Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. He describes an ancient foe to God's people. In our passage today, we will see an enemy of God and an enemy of his people. He seeks to discourage and accuse the people of God. Yet, this enemy does not have the last say. God's people have hope as they seek God, as they look to God. So this is what we'll see this morning from Zechariah 3. Our big idea is that God's people have hope as they look to the judge, the high priest, and the branch. God's people have hope as they look to God as he rebukes the accuser and all that he stands for. God's people have hope as they look to the high priest and his office and what he does in his work. And God's people have hope as they look to the branch and all that he stands for, this Davidic king. So it is my prayer that we see the person and work of Jesus in all of his splendor so that we would have hope as we seek to glorify God in everything that we do. So let's see what God's word says about the high priest in Zechariah chapter 3. But before we do that, let's just put our passage in some context. Where are we in the storyline of the Bible? Where does Zechariah fit within God's unfolding plan of redemption? Where does it fit in Genesis to Revelation? Well, the book really helps us out with that because in several places in the book, he specifically dates his book, during the reign of the Persian king Darius. And this is what that means. Because of this precision, the book could be dated from 520 
to 518 BC. So this places the book within the post-exilic context. Here's some key things of what that looked like, some highlights of what that looked like. So before the book of Zechariah was written, the nation of Israel was living in the promised land as a divided kingdom. Israel was in the north and Judah was in the south. But as a result of continued rebellion against God, both Israel and Judah were taken into exile. The Assyrians took them to exile. The Babylonians took them to exile. The city was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. You have the people of God living in exile, but eventually they're able to return back to the land. They're, they're able to, to go back to the promised land. And this is where we find ourselves in the book of Zechariah. They're in the promised land, and during this time, the Hebrews struggled to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple as they were economically and politically oppressed and weak under foreign rule. And it's this context, and it's this situation that the book of Zechariah was written to address. Just very briefly, we, it's, it's important to note that Zechariah chapters 1 through 6 is in a series of eight vision reports. And here we find our fourth vision report in chapter 3. Zechariah 3 is unique and distinct from them. Now that we have this in context, let's look at chapter 3. Let's start with the first two verses where we find our first point. In Zechariah, verses 1 and 2, we see that God's people have hope as they look to God as judge. Let's read it. Zechariah 1 and 2, chapter 3. Then the Lord showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? So notice carefully with me. Verse 1 starts with, Then he showed me a vision. Right? Clearly distinguishing it from the third vision in chapter 2. We have a new vision here. And, and notice, just right away in this first verse, look at all of the characters that we have. You have Joshua the high priest and Satan and the angel of the Lord. Let's introduce those characters. We have Joshua the high priest. Right? Not to be confused with the leader in the book of Joshua, but Joshua the high priest, one who returned from the Babylonian exile. And he's a high priest. There's no better description in my analysis of what the high priest is and does than in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. Hebrews 5.1 says this. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. We could spend a whole hour unpacking this, but let's just point out a couple of things that the high priest is and does here. First, he's appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. So as a human being, the high priest is able to represent his fellow human beings to God. He's a representative of each party as he speaks on behalf of one to the other. Right? So he's a mediator. 
between one party and another party. And he offers gifts and sacrifices for sins. So as a human being, he is able to represent his fellow human beings to God with gifts and sacrifices that atone for sin. Right? Very important person we see here, this high priest. We also have this figure here, the angel of the Lord. This angel of the Lord. What's, what's going on with this figure? Who is this guy? Well, certainly he's an angel, right? But he's of the Lord. Well, in the book of Zechariah, he's a messenger of God. He just speaks on behalf of God. Sometimes he explains the message that's being delivered, and he explains the message, and he tells us what it means. We have another figure here, another character, Satan. He's standing there to accuse Satan could simply be rendered the accuser. That's what it means. And what is this accuser doing? Well, he's the enemy of God who seeks to bring charges against God's people. Right? Similar to what we find in the book of Job, in the first few chapters. The accuser presents himself before the heavenly courtroom and wants to bring charges against Job. He wants to tear Job down. We have a similar figure here in Zechariah 3. And then finally, we have the Lord. The God who is judge will decide this dispute that's happening. So those are the characters. What about the scene? Well, the scene is happening in a heavenly courtroom. So Joshua is standing by the angel of the Lord and the accuser. And the angel of the Lord is speaking on behalf of the Lord who is judge. Now that the characters are introduced and the scene is set, let's look what happens a little bit closer. Verse 2. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The accuser is rebuked. God as judge rebukes the accuser. Look how strong this language is. You are rebuked, O Satan. One commentator notes that the word rebuke here communicates such strong divine cursing that the expression became a curse formula widely attested to in the post-exilic period. But notice as we continue in verse 2 here, the accuser is rebuked again. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. So this was an authoritative, strong rebuke that the accuser received. But this time, the rebuke is followed by the phrase, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem. Right? God is saying, I have chosen Jerusalem. Not because they're great and mighty. No, I have chosen Jerusalem to display my grace. Jerusalem is in my plan. And you think you could come here and overthrow my plan? You are rebuked for such things. And then he describes the one he is committed to. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Well, since Joshua is being accused, it seems like he's describing Joshua here. Isn't Joshua a brand plucked from the fire? Well, what's going on with this language? Well, if we look at Amos 4.11, I think we get some help. Amos 4.11 says this. 
I overthrew some of you, as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were a brand plucked out from the burning. So this is what this language means here, this brand plucked from the fire. God overthrew Israel in judgment as he sent them to exile, as he sent them to fire. They went to the fires of exile. And yet, God had mercy on some of them. They were not all burnt up. There was a smoldering stick. God saved Joshua from exile and brought him back to Jerusalem. God is saying, my purposes will stand. I have chosen Jerusalem for my purposes. I have shown grace and mercy to Joshua. You are rebuked, accuser. Now imagine going to our court case thinking you're going to win. You think you have all of the evidence. You did your homework. You got it all together and you're ready to bring your charges. But the judge knows all of the evidence. He knows the full picture. He is perfectly just. And in our passage this morning, we learn a few things about God as judge. And we learn a few things about this accuser. And these things give us hope as we look to God as judge. We see that God rebukes the accuser. What do we learn about God here and his rebuke, rebuking of the accuser? Well, we see that God has no rivals. He is not competing with his enemies. He rebukes his enemies and has the authority and power to do so. And this gives us hope. We serve an all-powerful God who has all authority. We also learn a few things about the accuser, this enemy of God who seeks to bring charges against God's people, this figure that we see in the book of Job who wants to bring charges against God's elect, trying to tear him down. We see in Revelation 12, 15, it says this, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. Listen closely here. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So you have this accuser coming before the saints of God Day and night, bringing charges against them before God. So we have a principle here that Satan accuses the people of God regularly and consistently. He's good at it. He's been doing it for, ever, for a long time. What might this, what might these charges look like? How might this accuser bring charges against God's people? Well, it might look something like this. The saint is in a hopeless situation. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. They've dug themselves in a pit that's so deep that they can't get out. No hope. Just give up. Just give in. Or it might look like the believer can't change. They're stuck in their ways. Just look at their life. They're wired that way. There's no hope for change. There's no hope change for believers. Or 
There's no hope for people who don't follow Christ. People are who they are. You can't change them. Or the person's stain of sin is too big to be forgiven. You know what they think. You know what they do. You know how they live. They can't be loved. Or the believer will utterly deny you, God, when things get tough. Just take away some of their comforts and they will deny you. The accuser might be saying such things. Are we listening to the accuser's lies? That we're in a hopeless situation? That we can't change? That our sin is so big that it can't be cleansed? That God is not faithful to keep us steadfast? We have hope in a God who rebukes the accuser and all of his authority. As Romans says, no one can bring a charge against God's elect. It is God who justifies. No one can bring a charge against God's elect. Not an enemy, not an accuser, no one. It is Almighty God who justifies. And finally, remember with me what our place is. We are God's creation, God to glorify God with our entire lives. That is our purpose. Let us all run away from any hints of being like the accuser and all that he stands for and all that he says. And let us run to Christ, our Savior. We can also have hope in God as we look to the high priest. This brings us to our second main point. Our second main point is in verses 3 through 7. Here we see that God's people have hope as they look to the high priest. We see that Joshua, the high priest, is forgiven in verses 3 and 5, and then he's commissioned in verses 6 and 7. Let's read the verses 3 through 5 with me. Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. So notice here in verses 3 through 5 that Joshua the high priest is clothed from filth to purity. In verse 3, we see that he's marked by filth. His clothes are filthy. He's not standing there clean and innocent and pure and righteous. He doesn't have any high, grand, high, high moral ground to stand upon. Look at me. Look at all the accomplishments I've done. I'm the high priest. I've lived a righteous life. He's not standing there in those ways. No. His garments are covered in filth. This word filth carries the idea of vomit and feces. So it looks like Joshua the high priest walked through the sewer a couple of times and then showed up to court. But God said that the accuser is rebuked and yet you have Joshua standing there in disgusting clothes? Why might this matter? Well, remember, Joshua was the high priest. 
How can he offer sacrifices like this? How can he represent men before God? He couldn't. He was not ceremonially clean. He was ceremonially unclean. So the question is then, how could this high priest practice his duties before a holy God? Our text says, behold, see, look, observe what happens here. Look what God says. I have taken your iniquity away from you. So how could Joshua the high priest practice his duties before holy God? God forgives him. His sins have been taken away. And look at how this is pictured. I will clothe you in pure vestments. Here's the image. Joshua is in filthy garments. He's not, he not only does sinful things, he is sinful. He's marked by sin, stained with it. God's divine grace-filled initiative is needed. Joshua could not save himself. If Joshua was to be saved, it had to be from God. And this is what happens. His old garments are removed. His sins are forgiven. He's not stained with sin. And not only that, not only is Joshua the high priest, garments removed and his sins forgiven and he's no longer stained with sin. He's given pure vestments. If the old filthy clothes are identified with sin, his new pure vestments are identified with righteousness, with God's forgiveness, with God's grace. Not of his own, not of Joshua's own. He was marked by sin. None other than the righteousness of our God. We also see in verse 5 that Joshua was given a clean turban. What's up with that? Well, priests in the Old Testament wore a garment, had a breastplate and a garment, and they had a turban. Right now, Joshua has a garment. And he has a turban placed on his head, which means he's now completely clothed in proper priestly attire. He was clean and could act as a high priest. He could represent men before God and he could offer sacrifices that atone for sin. So how might this passage give us hope? Well, in Zechariah's day, God's people had hope as they looked to the high priest the priest could now represent them before God as he presents sacrifices. What glorious expectation. What hope. They can have hope. But look at the hope you have. Look at our high priest. Hebrews is all about this. Hebrews says that Jesus is superior to the Levitical priests. He's superior to Joshua, the high priest. He is our great high priest. Spend some time in Hebrews 7. This is a summary of it. Very, right? We see that Jesus, as high priest, brings complete and final forgiveness, unattainable through the Levitical priesthood. Jesus has an indestructible life, which makes his priesthood superior. Right? He died and rose again. His priesthood never ends. Jesus, as high priest, could bring people directly into the presence of God. Jesus, as high priest, could save his people perfectly and completely. Jesus came as the sinless priest and offered the best sacrifice. 
Right? We see in Hebrews chapter 2 that Jesus as high priest is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. We see in Hebrews chapter 2 and chapter 4 that Jesus, because of his sacrifice, is able to bring us into the presence of God. Jesus came into this world with clean garments. And they were never stained because of his own sin. But Jesus took our sin upon himself. Our filthy garments upon himself. Our sins. Our iniquities. All of it. So that we could be clothed in his righteousness. Now, if we want to learn more about high priest, this high priest Jesus, we have a great book we're currently giving away called Gentle and Lowly. There's a couple of chapters in there about Jesus as high priest. And it aims at describing Jesus as gentle and lowly. So if you would like this book, please go to the book stall at the end of the service and ask for Heather, ask, um, Heather to give. She's right over there. And she'll give you a free book. We have plenty of them. Please go get them. All right, so we see that there's hope as we look to the high priest. There's forgiveness in verses 3 through 5. But then we see that Joshua, the high priest, is commissioned in verses 6 and 7. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Right, so in these verses, we have an if-then, right? If you do these things, then these things. Right, so what's the if? If, Joshua, you walk in my ways, and if you keep my charge... Right, what's going on here? Well, if Joshua, if you live your life under the rule of my word, if you follow the regulations prescribed in the law for priests, if you are a faithful covenant member, that's the if, what's the then? Then you will rule. And what is he going to rule? My house, and you will have charge of my courts. But what's going on here? It's talking about the temple here. Includes, so he's saying that, Joshua, you will rule and have charge of the temple of God. This includes things like the management within the temple, making sure that the prescribed duties were done in the temple. So if Joshua the high priest obeys, he will continue the privilege of his role as high priest. And then we have an interesting phrase here. You will have a right of access among those standing here. Well, the context suggests that this means that Joshua the high priest will have access to the heavenly council gathered before them, right? He's in the heavenly courtroom. It means that Joshua the high priest has access to the special and unique dwelling place of God. This at least meant the holy of holies in the temple. This is the place where the high priest went once a year to offer a sacrifice, the day of atonement, the unique and special dwelling place of God. And what might this mean for us? 
Well, look at the order of things here. In verses 3 through 5, we see that Joshua is given new garments. He is forgiven. And then in verses 6 and 7, he is commissioned. He is charged. It's vital that we get this order right. We obey because we are saved. There is obedience. Obedience is good. Let's strive to live our lives under the rule of God. Let's strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Let's seek to be more conformed to the image of Jesus as we read his word, as we pray, as we gather together as a church. But we do these things because we are saved. We can't merit our own salvation. So we obey because we are saved. We are clothed in righteousness and then commissioned. So we have hope to obey God's word because we have been enabled and empowered to do so. Also note that Joshua, the high priest, is given access to the special and unique dwelling place of God. But once a year, it says in Hebrews, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, everyone who follows Jesus, who puts their trust and faith in him, will have access to the direct, to the unique and special dwelling place of God even now as we worship him. We're given the great privileges of coming before the throne of God, pleading for his mercy, asking him for help, worshiping him and praising him. So finally, let's look at one more way God's people have hope. And this brings us to our third point. Our third point could be found in verses 8 and 10. God's people have hope as they look to the branch Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you. For they are men who are assigned, behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. So we have a sign described here in verse 8. Joshua's companions, those who are sitting there before him, are a sign and they're pointing to something. And what does our text say that they're pointing to? My servant, the branch. Now let's break this down. My servant. This phrase, my servant, refers to people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. They're all called my servant. They're all called God's servant. The nation of Israel is also called my servant. We have the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. There's also a reference to King David. King David is referred to as God's servant a lot of times. And I think... Here, it's used to signify King David and his dynasty. So here in in the passage of Zechariah 3, when it says, my servant, it's referring to King David and his dynasty because it's connected to the word branch. And the word branch, as we'll see, is explicitly connected with King David and his dynasty. But it could also include this idea of the suffering servant 
Because right here in context, we see that there's the removal of sin in a single day. But this, my servant the branch, certainly signifies King David and his dynasty. It's also connected, my servant the branch is connected, uh, my servant is also connected with the phrase branch. Now, when this phrase, the branch, is used, it's a prominent Old Testament phrase that refers to the Messiah. So in Jeremiah 23.5, we get this, it's very clear here that this branch refers to someone from the line of David. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will rise up for David a righteous branch, and he will rule. Right? So God's going to rise up for David, a righteous branch, someone from his line. So Joshua's companions are pointing to a, fi a figure in the future that God will rise up, who is a Davidic king and is the servant of the Lord. And when he comes, as we'll see, God will remove the sin in a single day. What expectation, what hope but how are Joshua's companions signs? Well, remember, God showed mercy to Joshua and his companions. He rescued them from exile. So that, that Joshua and his companions are in the land shows that God is faithful to his word and people because he promised them that he would bring them back. And just as God is faithful to bring his promise, his, his people back to the promised land, so God is faithful to bring my servant the branch. You can count on it. God is faithful. So, as Joshua's companions are faithful and have been shown mercy, they point to the good things to come. The coming Davidic king. Now, notice we have this imagery here of a stone with seven eyes. To show you how easy identifying this stone is, listen to how many interpretations there are of it. There's a, a capstone of the temple, a jewel in the priest's breastplate, a gem in the crown, a stone in the Holy of Holies and the Messiah, just to list a few. Right, there's, a lot of, un, there's a lot of ambiguity as to what the stone is referring to. I'm just going to briefly mention three. Some argue that the stone is the capstone of the temple because they're rebuilding the temple, remember, in the book of Zechariah because it's been destroyed. And the eyes that we see, the seven eyes, represent the inscriptions of the kings who ruled. So this fits the, the theme of rebuilding the temple, right? They're rebuilding the temple and they put a capstone on top. There you go. And then it also has a little bit of history supporting it. When kings of the ancient Near East would finish this huge project, they would sign their names on the stone of the capstone. I'm not entirely sure that's what's happening here in Zechariah, but it is certainly an option. We also see that others argue that the stone refers to the Messiah, this coming Davidic king. Why? Well, the stone is sometimes used in other Old Testament passages to refer to the coming Messiah. And in the New Testament... The stone represents this Messiah. Okay, so sure, but what about these eyes? How does the stone have eyes on it? That's, that's interesting. Well, people who take this view argue that the eyes represent God's eyes which range through the whole earth. 
God sees all and knows all. So this is how they would take it. God will be with his people and ensure that Christ is coming. It's the Messiah view. And you have a third view, is that the stone is uh, a stone engraved on Joshua's priestly breastplate. Right? Remember, he's wearing a priestly breastplate. He has 12 stones on it to represent the tribes of Israel. It's one of those stones. And this certainly fits the idea of the um, Old Testament stone on a breastplate. And we're talking about um, Joshua the high priest's attire, right? Garments, turbans. So perhaps it's a stone on his breastplate. I think it's either the Messiah or the stone. But we don't want to miss this. Look, whatever the stone is connected with and whatever these seven eyes are, let's not miss what it's connected to. This stone is connected with the idea that God will remove the iniquity in a single day. This stone points to the forgiveness that God will bring. Let's not miss what's happening here. Zechariah is saying that you have this, my servant, the branch, who's coming, and there's a stone associated with the removal of the sins in a single day. And this removal of the sins in a single day seems to be connected with the office of priest, forgiveness. So we have two offices here that Zechariah is drawing upon. A king, my servant, the branch, is going to come. And a, and a priest associated with the idea of the removal of sins in a single day. So here in Zechariah 3, these old two Testament offices are combined and related to one another. And they even seem to say that they're connected to one person. Now there's, there's more clarity of this in Zechariah 6.13. You could write that down, look at it later. Zechariah 6.13. It says this. I guess you could turn there as well. It's like on the next page. Zechariah 6.13 says this. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne and there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. So it seems to show that the office of priest and the office of king will be united in one person, both in Zechariah 3 and Zechariah 6. Now, why might this matter? Why are we spending time about this? Well, Psalm 110 does the same thing. There we see the Davidic king, who is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So we have passages of Scripture that show that the coming deliverer will be a king and he will be a priest. And this is none other than our King Jesus, right? Jesus is from the line of David. He's a Davidic descent. He's truly king. And he's a priest. After the order of Melchizedek, he's a priest. So this means that Jesus fulfills these passages. He died and removed sin in a single day. Jesus is the servant. Jesus is the branch. Jesus is the one who removed sin. He's the one who died to remove sin in a single day. To remove all sin in a single day. What hope and what joy. 
And finally, in verse 10, we see there's restoration described. In that day, right? so in the distant future, from Zechariah's point of view, when the Messiah will come, everyone is going to invite his neighbor. Come and see. Come and taste. Here is where true life is found, true peace and satisfaction. Here is where the blessed life is. In our times, we see that it's come to Jesus. You want peace and security, the blessed life that we've been going through. Come to Jesus. As we see, the Old Testament is a roadmap to Jesus. It's pointing to our coming king and priest. And here's what verses 8 and 9 mean for us. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you will have to face God as judge. And you'll have to face him in judgment. But there's hope for you. right? Jesus died Jesus rose again. Jesus fulfilled all of this imagery that we've seen in Zechariah 3. My servant, the branch, the king, the priest. He died to remove sin in a single day. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. You will be saved if you believe in this good news and you turn to him and run from your sins. Church family, Jesus is our priest king. He clothes us in his righteousness. Let's continue to believe in this. Let's continue to flee from sin and run to Jesus. Let's, our hope, let's continue to have hope in Jesus and the finished work of Jesus. Let's confess our sins to him. Let's trust in him. Let's come bef- boldly before the throne of grace. Let's continue to invite our friends to come to Jesus. Let's declare this good news to everyone and everywhere for the glory of God. We have hope that our sins are forgiven. We have assurance that our sins are forgiven. And we have hope of pointing others to this great king who don't know Christ, whose sins could be forgiven as well. So we see that God's people have hope as they look to God as judge. No one will bring a charge against God's elect. We see that God's people have hope as they look to the high priest, Jesus Christ. In his office as high priest and his work as high priest. And we have hope as we look to the branch, this Jesus who's come and died and removed sin in a single day. So put your hope in God as you look to your great king priest, Jesus. Please join me in prayer.